And a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. My name's Sam Lowitz, joined as always by Jack Hendon, episode 55. This is a special one, not because of the Mets, but because of what we're going to do in this episode. We are going to, as always, when it comes down to an episode uh, where we conduct an interview, uh, pretty much going to start it out with a little what's going on on the field right now, what's going on in modern day Mets land, but... Very exciting. The reason there was no Pleasant Good Evening podcast on Monday when we usually drop is because we secured an interview uh, for today, Wednesday, uh, with Nick Davis, who was the producer and director behind the recent ESPN 30 for 30 uh, documentary on the 1986 Mets called Once Upon a Time in Queens, which we talked about on our previous episode, gave a pretty in-depth review. Uh, We reached out to Nick. He gave a listen to our episode. He liked what we had to say, both positive and negative. And he said, let's talk about it some more. So uh, in just a moment, we will introduce Nick. But before we do that, Jack, uh, the Mets will not make the playoffs. Yes, they do suck. Uh, They will not make the playoffs in 2021. Year one of the Steve Cohen experiment, a failure in the record books. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's accurate. Uh, really interesting first three months and pretty much like the worst two months I can remember following that. Um, Don't really have much else to say. The games were really long, which made it a whole lot worse. I think they, what was it? A 10 game streak of games, three and a half hours or longer. And they lost a bunch of them by one run, and you just you can't do that, man. You can't lose games by one run. You can't have pitchers only going five, six innings every time out. You can't be reliant on pitcher on starters who don't really have a whole lot of experience going more than 150 innings. Um, and you need a hitting approach. These are just a number of things uh, that kind of just proved to be too many uh, to handle. I think there's going to be a lot of changes uh, pretty much starting the second this season ends, which mercifully enough for us will be this coming weekend. Uh, we have a few more games against the Marlins and then three in Atlanta, which may be an opportunity to play spoiler, but uh, it's not really in our interests, which is kind of a bummer. I think we all were convinced in May or June that this thing was wrapped up that, you know, worst case the Mets would lose in the first round, but still, give us some postseason baseball. And, you know, we didn't even get to see Jacob deGrom again after the first week in July. And I think that's sort of where it all, uh, you know, really links back whether or not it had to do with deGrom getting hurt. That was really our last experience of joy watching this team. Yeah. We'll do a full postmortem on this team. Once game 162 is done and over with on Sunday for our next episode, but in the meantime, the Mets' most recent two games, they won a uh, – they swept the doubleheader from the Marlins on Tuesday, which, again, as Jack kind of alluded to, not really in their own interest, up to 75 and 82 on the year. They have clinched a losing season, uh, and they are kind of uh, possibly still in a position where they can get a top-10 draft pick. The Royals and the Rockies are ahead of them uh, in terms of losses right now, and it's going to be tough to catch those two teams, uh, Rockies 72 and 85. And the Royals right now at also 72 and 85. So the Mets um, just three losses behind those two teams. It's going to, with five games left in the season, it's going to be tough. Mets will probably have to lose out and both those teams will probably have to win out in order for the Mets to get that top 10 pick. Again, a refresher, 
Why is that so important? The Mets have the 11th pick in the draft, regardless of their record, because of the uh, failing to sign Kumar Rocker. Um, that pick is not going anywhere. It cannot be lost if they sign a qualified free agent. If their other first round pick that they get based on record falls in the top 10, it is protected. If it falls outside of the top 10, it is not protected, meaning that uh, they would lose it if they sign like Carlos Correa or any other qualified free agent. So if they finish uh, with the 12th worst record in baseball, they'd pick 13th because that 11th pick is sandwiched in there um, and they would risk losing that 13th overall pick depending on who they sign in free agency. But if it winds up being the 10th pick, that they will have picks 10 and 11 regardless of what they do this offseason. Um, but I guess we'll find out uh, in, in a week where they're going to pick. Uh, next year um on the bright side if you want to call it a bright side they brought back Noah Syndergaard for an inning last night he pitched a one two three frame struck out two batters throwing really just fastballs and change-ups um was it I mean was it worth it Jack? I think it was I, yeah. I think it was I mean I don't know it's it's only one inning it's only going to be one inning there isn't a, a follow-up happening this was just to get his feet wet and get him some sort of ground uh for when he you know needs a qualifying offer and potentially uh goes to free agency I don't think he's going to reject the QO I think if you're getting paid 18 million dollars for one year and you get that full year to really prove yourself um I mean we saw what Marcus Stroman accomplished uh off the qualifying offer it's a very similar uh paradigm although Obviously, Syndergaard is coming back from a much more serious injury, uh, you know, having to undergo Tommy John surgery. So it is kind of a as far as what we get from him next year. I'm, I'm not sure. I think that's something that will be answered in spring training. See how he really responds to a workload. Hope that he can give you a, a full year. But also, really, when it comes down to it, I don't think the Syndergaard return uh, should change the fact that they have a hole in that back of the rotation that uh, desperately needs to be filled by someone who can give you innings. Because right now, between Carlos Carrasco, Tyler McGill, and Taiwan Walker, I just don't really see, I, I'm just not that inspired. And obviously, Marcus Stroman's going to command a lot of money. If you lose him, you now have another spot um, that would need to be filled. So there is, I think, a lot uh, to ponder between now and, and the end of the year. But I think Syndergaard coming back will, will probably happen. Uh, and I'm glad he got the, I'm glad he got to return just for his sake. And I'm glad he wasn't throwing 91, 93, uh, 95, 96 is a lot more encouraging. His windup was a little bit, you could tell he was putting a little bit more into his hips. There was a little bit more upper body, uh, or I guess for him, it would be like lower body. Cause he's always been all arms, but, um, there was definitely, something different definitely some kind of compensating going on but if he becomes a more like dynamic pitcher like that and he still throws hard and gets out it's fine by me um I thought he looked good I thought the changeup looked really really good considering that's the only pitch he got to throw that wasn't a fastball yeah, so yeah. I'm I'm happy about it I enjoyed it yeah he struck out Jazz Chisholm uh in a sequence that had three out of four changeups had and struck him out on the changeup so yeah. uh changeup was good uh on the flip side, someone who is not returning, Jacob deGrom, will not pitch again in 2021. So his season stats are done. And as he went, the Mets kind of went once he got injured is when things kind of started to trickle on the downward side. It took a couple of weeks to really set in. They still kind of 
uh, were winning for a couple weeks after the injury in early July, but um, by deadline time is when things kind of started getting bleak for this team, obviously, when it really turned around. Uh, disappointing that he couldn't finish his season, obviously, his first half, uh, as good a first half as anyone's ever had, more or yeah. less. Uh, and obviously concerns now that he's getting older about how his body can hold up. But, you know, I, I, I would much rather have him have a full off seasons, uh, you know, a normal off season health wise than try to push coming back this season. He had been throwing side sessions. He said that uh, he's not coming back just because it doesn't make sense to come back. Not because he's not able to, he said that he's pretty much where he needs to be to come back, but um, they don't want to put him in a game situation and, and risk him maxing out and getting hurt, uh, mm. you know, with five games left in a losing season. So unfortunate because this, this, uh, season had Cy Young written all over for Jake at, uh, at worst. Yeah. That was the, that was the floor. It was going to be a lot more than a Cy Young. He could have won MVP, I think. Yeah. Uh, certainly. I mean, the national league MVP weight race is still kind of wide open. Um, mm. uh, so it's, it's a shame. I mean, when you look back at this season, I think that's just going to be a thing that you're going to say over and over again. It's like, man, this season, it's just, it's a shame that it didn't go better all around. It's a shame that the breaks they caught in the negative direction happened because a fun group of guys, a bunch of guys yeah. who didn't perform up to capabilities, a bunch of guys who got injured. Um, man, it's just, man, what could have been with this team? Yeah. And I think another kind of parallel, and then we'll move on to something a little more exciting, which is the races. Um, I think that there was really something to be said of the fact that DeGrom got hurt. The team insisted it wasn't anything that was big. The team started playing badly. And, you know, in a more implicit way, the team really insisted that there wasn't anything wrong because they didn't really do much at the deadline. And you look at the teams that had bad deadlines and you look at where they are now, you look at what happened to the Padres, especially like that, that stuff bit you in the ass. I, I, there's no argument around it. Um, you could have done things to improve. You knew Jacob deGrom wasn't going to be 100%. Your only pitching reinforcements were Rich Hill and Trevor Williams. And Rich Hill, for you know, to his credit, has done a lot of things well, but he's not a length guy. They did not have a single length guy aside from Marcus Stroman. And um, that's something that also really took them down. And the fact that through all of it, we were told that all was well when it wasn't. And for it to end the way it was, I think, as a fan, it's just very uh disenchanting disillusioning it's 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 not it, it doesn't leave me with a good taste in my mouth at all and I don't think anything that happens between now and the end of the season could even remotely change that um because the best case they finish 80 and 82 so yeah and then but the good news is that if you're a baseball fan there's still lots of really good baseball uh exciting baseball the American League is nuts right now uh the Mariners are half game out of a playoff spot. There is still a potential for a five-way tie in that AL wild card. Um, we don't know how that's going to shake out. The National League playoff picture is much more concrete. We have four of the five teams have clinched. The Brewers are the NL Central champions. Uh, both the Dodgers and Giants will make the playoffs, still waiting for the dust to settle. The Giants are ahead of the Dodgers currently, um, but have not clinched the division yet. They are baseball's best team record-wise, the first team to 100 wins. Uh, the Cardinals have clinched the second wild-card spot because they've won 17 games in a row, which is stupid. Uh, and, Bad for the game. Yeah, freaking Cardinals, devil magic every freaking year. 
Uh, and then in the uh, NL East is the only race in the National League uh, that is not completely settled or at least semi-settled. Uh, the Braves can still lose this division to the Phillies. So that's why when Jack said earlier that the Mets could play spoiler in the last weekend of the season against the Braves, that's what he meant. The Mets playing the Braves the last weekend have a chance to knock the Braves out of the playoff race because the Phillies are on their heels and the Phillies uh, have an easier schedule. The Phillies play um, the Phillies play the uh, excuse me, I'm just pulling it up. I mean, the Braves play the Mets. That's also easy, but the Phillies don't. They play the Marlins, I'm pretty sure. I think you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it ends with the Marlins. We basically change seats. Marlins go to the Phillies. Uh, we go to the Braves. But, you know, I guess if this if we were able to eliminate the Braves somehow, uh, that would be cool. But the Phillies are three and a half games back right now. They would need to win this game tonight and then tomorrow to even gain ground from where the series began. And then they would be a game and a half out and it wouldn't necessarily uh, be even. Yeah, I mean, on the flip side, I don't want the Phillies to make the playoffs either. No, but I want to be responsible for a team going home. I think yeah, that could be fun. That that would be fun because I've ne- I've never seen that. I don't think we've ever gotten that. I had never seen a team clinch in front of us either, and we watched the Brewers do that. I don't want to watch the Braves clinch in front of us. Also, I think like it's just it's you know I don't I don't know. I both of those teams do not stand a chance or not yet against the against whether it's the Brewers or a wild card. Well, it would be the Brewers. They, you would they think. they're they're going to get steamrolled. You would think, you would think so we'll, uh, but the playoffs are weird. So you will, we will see. Um, but in the American league, I mean, Yankees, Red Sox, Blue Jays, Mariners, A's all within, uh, I think three games of a wild card spot. Uh, Mariners are a half game behind the Red Sox for the second spot. Yankees two up on the Red Sox for the first spot. And the, uh, uh, Blue Jays a game behind the Mariners and the A's I think a game behind the Blue Jays. Um, big thing with the A's they've lost eleven consecutive matchups against the Mariners. That is going to kill their season. Um, mm-hmm. They are the least likely of those teams to sneak in. The Yankees yeah. have kind of controlled their own destiny now that they're in the first spot. They beat the Blue Jays last night. Giancarlo Stanton is on another planet right now. Um, he, his numbers in the second half have been monstrous. He's up to 35 home runs this season. He had a three run home run in Toronto last night on, I don't think on a pitch I've never seen had at a ballpark before. It was a changeup at his feet and he golfed it over the left. It was a Trevor Richards changeup too, which is like a turbo splitter, just like one of the most impossible pitches to hit and dude, got it. He's when you're hot, you're hot. He's on another planet. Obviously, they, they swept the Red Sox at Fenway over the weekend and, and Stanton hit home runs in all three of those games, including the Grand Slam in one of the games. I mean, right now the Mariners are red hot, but the Yankees are red hot too. Uh, the Red Sox lost their first game against the Orioles. The Orioles are really enjoying playing spoiler right now. I mean, Orioles Twitter was lighting up uh, the timeline last night after they beat the Red Sox uh, and came back and beat Chris Sale. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle and Trey Mancini had huge hits in that game. Mm-hmm. And the Mariners, Mitch Hanniger is up to 38 home runs. Uh, he's having a really good bounce back season. I mean, he's been, he's the reason that they've crushed the A's. He's been lighting the A's up. Uh, he had two, two, three run home runs in the first game of that series. And then he homered again last night. Like he's been on another planet too. 
Um, would be really cool for baseball if the A's snuck into the playoffs. They have the, lar- the longest drought currently in Major League Baseball in terms of playoffs. They haven't made the playoffs since 2001. So I'm, I'm a little torn on that because on one end, like they have so much talent coming up and I know they're going to be really good. So it's like, if they break their streak, I want them to be able to make a run. I want them to have a legitimately good team, but also just them simply making it, even if they get bounced in game one, because this team is kind of fun. Uh, they, they, they have like a negative 50 run differential, but they, they don't, they, uh, they have a thing where they call it a uh, fun differential because they have so many late and close wins. Yeah. Uh, they're just a fun team. So yeah. I think they'll do it. I have a feeling they're going to do it. I think they've been putting together more consistent uh, games on both sides of the ball than the Red Sox have. Um, and I think that really plays a role down the stretch these last few games. I mean, if you can't put away the Orioles, something is very wrong and it isn't very easy to correct that when time's taking away like that. Do I think they beat the Yankees? That was the other thing. Cause if the Mariners beat the Yankees, um, what they do is more than just making the playoffs. And I would love for them to beat the Yankees. It would be like, you crash the party at that point. I would and like, like you said, anything can happen. Um, I think they have a better chance of beating the Yankees than any NL East team has of even winning a game against another team. Um, with that said, though, it's, you know, I, if the Blue Jays made it, that would also be cool. I think those two teams are really the only ones still in a race where it's like, it would be more fun if they made it. I think that the Padres, if they had made it, that could have been really fun. I think if the Reds had, had held on in the brief window that they had, that could have been really exciting to see that team in, in, in the postseason. Uh, but at this point, you got to put your chips in for, for those two teams, I think. Yeah, the AL playoff picture is much more interesting than the NL playoff picture, even with the Astros winning uh, about to win the AL West. Um, the White Sox are fun in the AL Central. They clinched. That's that's all well and good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Rays have clinched the, the AL East. But the, that wild card race is great. So let's uh, let's move on and introduce our guest because we're very excited to have him on. His name is Nick Davis. You might be familiar with him if you watched the excuse me the thirty for thirty uh, once upon a time in Queens that debuted two weeks ago on ES. Excuse me. Hello. Uh, coffee's coming up on me on ESPN. Uh, talking about the nineteen eighty six Mets. Uh, he was the producer, the director, basically the creative head behind it uh, with his Nick Davis Productions company um, and uh, did that in collaboration with Major League Baseball, with the Mets and with uh, Jimmy Kimmel's production company, Kimmelot. So he's going to tell us a little bit about how that came to be. That's kind of an, uh, an odd marriage, but one that worked for him that he'll tell us about. Uh, he is a lifetime Mets fan and a filmmaker coming from a filmmaker's family. Um, his, uh, grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, who was the screenwriter for, uh, uh, Citizen Kane with Orson Welles, obviously one of the most famous films of all time. He's got a book out about his grandfather and his grandfather's brother, Joseph Mankiewicz called competing with idiots. It came out right around the same time as the documentary. So he's done some authorship too. Um, there's another book coming out, a companion book with this documentary, basically called, uh, that's the oral history of the 86 Mets. It tells stories that were cut from the original doc. He'll tell us more about that as well. Um, but in addition to his stuff with uh, this documentary, he has also done other stuff. He was an intern in, on Ken Burns' famous baseball series 
um, co-produced The Language of Love for PBS with David Grubin, produced Money and Power, The History of Business for CNBC. And then he kind of worked uh, in sports a little bit. He had a PBS master's film uh, called The Greatest Hitter Who Ever Lived about Ted Williams. That was his first real work, uh, or not his first real work in baseball. He also had a series on the Yankees called Bronx is Burning um, that debuted before that. He's done a there was a documentary about uh, cycling that he did. So uh, a filmmaker who has certainly had an interest in sports and in baseball uh, and, and marrying those two sides of his life for a while. And he was lucky. We were lucky enough to have him on the podcast. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy the interview. And we're now back with Nick Davis, the filmmaker behind the 30 for 30 on the 86 Mets, Once Upon a Time in Queens. Nick, we thank you so much for taking the time to join us. This is a thrill for us. Uh, how are you doing on this Wednesday morning? Yeah, I'm doing great, uh, Sam. Thank you for asking. I feel, uh, I feel, you know, only sad that now that we're eliminated, we're starting to play. Right. Yeah, uh, it's, I'm a little checked out about the whole on the field product right now myself. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's been rough. It's been rough, but there's it's exciting been, baseball it's around. Very the rough. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been very, very rough. I know Jack is going to echo those sentiments too. But we are, uh, we can talk some some current Mets, but we really want to talk about the process behind the documentary. We talked about it at length last week in our in our previous episode. So, if you're listening and you haven't uh, listened to our thoughts on that yet, our, our review of sorts, feel free to go back and then come back and, and listen to us uh, talk it up here with Nick. But uh, Nick, what how what was the story kind of behind how this documentary kind of came to be and how you kind of became involved? in making something like this with ESPN, with Major League Baseball, and with Jimmy Kimmel? So um, I am, as you guys may know, a lifelong Mets fan. And as the era of the long-form documentary got going, um, I was always thinking, why has nobody done the 86 Mets as a long-form? I know they did Daryl and Doc, and they've done little portions of the story, but no one ever did the whole, in my mind, epic story. And, um, and in fact, I read something in the trades in like 2010 or 2011 or so about one being made. And I was so, I don't know if I'm allowed to uh, curse on your guys' podcast, but I was Go so ahead. angry. And, uh, and, and I just thought like, God, man, I suck. Why didn't I get myself into a position where I could have been doing that? And then I sort of kept an ear open and nothing happened with that. And then in 2015, I was hired by PBS's American Masters series to do a film about Ted Williams, their first baseball player. Uh, I love baseball. I didn't know that much about Ted Williams, um, but I was happy to do it. And it was in partnership with Major League Baseball. And so the whole time I was working on that, I was saying to the guys at Major League Baseball, and in particular, this, the main executive there, Nick Trotta, who's a super smart, terrific guy, why has this, what happened with that Mets thing? What happened with the 86 Mets? Why didn't that happen? And he didn't really give me a good answer. It was all about sort of, well, timing and this and that. And I was like, well, let's do it. And he was like, let's get through Ted Williams first. So we did. And at that point, I got very serious about it with him and, and then had a meeting at actually at ESPN on the day that Ted Williams aired. And I asked them the same question, like, what happened? Why has this never been done? And, and the guy at ESPN gave me a long laundry list of things I would need to do in order to make it happen. You would need the mass participation. You would need Major League Baseball. You would need a really good pitch. You would need a written document that outlined your vision. Um, and no offense, Nick, uh, you would need an 800-pound gorilla. 
Uh, and so about six months later of working with, I had the Mets, I had the major league baseball, I had everything. I didn't have the gorilla and I didn't know how to get a gorilla. And I said to major league baseball, like, let's just go, let's take it. Like, you know, maybe if you pitch it to a network, they'll say, Hey, you got to work with this gorilla. And, and right then just through a crazy, you know, 86 Mets tinged with magic kind of coincidence. Jimmy Kimmel's production company had a meeting at Major League Baseball and said, you know, Jimmy loves the 86 Mets. Would you ever do anything about that? And they put us together, uh, had a fantastic meeting with Jimmy and cousin Sal and just felt like, well, this is this is kismet. Let's go. And so we then went and pitched it about a little over two years ago to a bunch of networks. ESPN was not the only one. They were not the only bidder. First time in my career, I had a bidding war. Um, and ESPN just had to have it because for all kinds of reasons, they, they, they didn't want to see this on another network. Um, so that, you know, in, I mean, I know that's a kind of long answer, but that's kind of how it happened. Um, and so then it was just like, okay, now we got to make it. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's great to, uh, to get a real feel for. I mean, one thing that I really picked up uh, or I guess two things I really picked up watching this, this series was that for one thing and part of why I really, uh, appreciated this was you could you could tell this was put together by somebody who uh, really really liked the Mets and wanted to do justice to a glowing time in the Mets history probably the the most I I think salient time in their history as a as a uh, as a as a franchise that a well known baseball organization and um so I really admired that aspect of it. like it's clearly put together by a Mets fan and we know of course Jimmy Kimmel is a Mets fan but this was also something that I think uh had a real uh you could also really tell that it was uh this was graced by and and um you know edited by and really uh put forward by someone with a film background and this is something that uh we sort of haven't really had the opportunity in other podcasts to to look into because you're not just a baseball fan you're also a, a pretty well established writer director and producer um, with a lot of experience how did that passion for film uh come about and and how did it sort of apply to sports because as you said this isn't really your first rodeo with um with sports documentaries you worked on the ted williams series you've also done bronx's burning um, I'm wondering like where that sort of inspiration came from in itself and how you found it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know how far back we want to go, but I mean, uh, you know, my family and another insane coincidence, I have a book out that, that came out the day the documentary aired. I, I wrote a book about my grandfather and his right. brother, uh, Herman and Joe Makowitz a book called Competing with Idiots, available at bookstores now. And, and, and so, you know, but I'm writing that for the last like 19 years. Um, and, you know, when you come from a family who tells stories on screen, I mean, you can do lots of things. You can run from it, but if it's what you want to do, you have to sort of embrace it. And, and what I love is that my grandfather wrote, uh, other than Citizen Kane, he also wrote Pride of the Yankees. So mm -hmm. I've, when I was working on this, I was like, God, this is so, you know, I'm doing a Mets thing and he did that. Um, and, and so I, I sort of liked that. I mean, it's funny because when you work on a film about something, it's really fun to work on a film about something you don't know anything about. Like I've done some, you know, I did a film on bicycling on a, bi a cycling team that was trying to ride to the, 
Tour de France and prove that you could do it without taking drugs. And, and I didn't know anything about cycling. And, and it was really fun to sort of immerse yourself and then tell back to the world what you've learned. Um, I don't think I'd worked on something I loved already so much as this. Yeah. Uh, and it was very different. It was, and, and you know, the, you meant, I was not, you know, it was not, it's not a one man thing. I had editors. One of the editors is a Phillies fan. One of them is a Dodgers fan and the other doesn't like baseball. Mm. And so those three editors kept me honest. My co-producer and right arm on the project is a Baltimore Orioles fan. And so there were times when it was like, you know, you're getting a little too into the weeds here, a Mets fan. And, and I could feel it like, okay, this is just me as a Mets fan. Like this isn't interesting as a story, but sort of making sure that the story appealed not just to Met fans and not just to baseball fans, but to, you know, people in general who don't care about baseball, but want to hear a story about a bunch of really fascinating, dynamic, charismatic characters. Yeah. And to me, that's what made the 86 Mets and the Mets of that era so amazing is, yes, they were amazingly talented and great baseball players, but they were also just such fascinating, weird personalities. Yeah. And, and it was the personalities that was that is always at the heart of, of, you know, of a story and of a film. And so that's what I wanted to, to focus on. And I do think that for me as a Mets fan, the Mets fanness sort of sometimes could get in the way. And I have right. of that. Yeah, I mean, from a from a narrative perspective, I think that this is a super accessible documentary to even a non-baseball fan because the narrative really shines forward. And I think something that you did that was really effective in that was kind of juxtaposing the 86 Mets and their progression up to that point with the transformation of New York City. You're you're only about a year younger than my own father who grew up in Brooklyn. So I heard all these stories growing up about how New York City in the 60s and 70s was a shithole. And (laughs) (laughs) I think you really captured that really strongly in comparison with exactly how shitty the Mets were uh, yeah. in the late 70s and, and even early 80s. And um, I think that that was a really strong uh, narrative device. If I, you know, if I can use my little public communications uh, education background uh, that I appreciated, I thought that was a nice little narrative touch. But again, I think that this was a very accessible documentary. I think that it wasn't too baseball jargony. Uh, I think that, you know, I could have uh, my grandma, who doesn't really know all that much about baseball, sit down and, and uh, she would appreciate uh, exactly what was happening and, and understand how the characters uh, were characters and worked off themselves. Yeah, uh, good, good. I mean, that was the point. And that, that was what we felt. And I don't know if your dad felt it at the time, but in this city, it did seem like, especially, you know, 84, 85, 86, you felt like, whoa, this team is the city like somehow the wildness and and unruliness and sort of you know sexiness but also feeling of danger in the city in the 80s was captured by the team and you know i just don't know of other sports teams great though they may be that ever sort of fused with their cities in that way i mean you think of like i I grew up with the 75 reds as being like wow that's the team but i don't think of those guys and think Cincinnati mid 70s like I just think well that was a great team and they played in Cincinnati mm-hmm. um, sure but the Mets like they they just became New York uh, for for that brief moment in yeah. time I sort of I mean it's funny that you mentioned that I once I had and I've listened to a couple other uh, podcasts that you've 
you've gone on just because I wanted to do my research. Um, and I really appreciate that component of the stories overlapping with, you know, how the Mets rise is sort of mirroring the city's rise. And for me, like it just part of it almost made my heart hurt because at least in June of 2021, and this is not an experience that is universal to everybody, but for me, it really felt like the pandemic was being lifted. In a lot of ways, it felt like vaccines were really climbing at that hmm. point. Um, once we got to July and the variants started to kick in, that was just its own problem. But with this team, June is really the last month. That's when they were 10 games over 500. And then once they sort of fell off the cliff, like the case numbers became a problem again, like, and it, for a brief moment hearing this, like, that's just what flashes in my mind. And it, 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 mm. It that's breaks my heart because yeah. if this city had come back all the way, I think this team would have come back all the way. But it's really, I think, huh. it 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 penetrates it like I think I, it, yeah. a conversation about sports and the way they affect yeah. people that I really, I really appreciate, and I'm really glad that you brought to light. I do have a question about because you mentioned having other uh, voices in the room who kept you honest as a Mets fan. I know just simply from my experience talking on a podcast and sometimes talking about the Mets with my own voice for as long as seven minutes, it's really, really hard to keep things brief and only keep in the things that are important because mm. as a fan, you feel like everything's important. I don't know how much uh, Liberty we are at to talk about what didn't make the cut or not. And I also know that, and we'll talk about the oral history that's on the way because that is going to be like, I cannot wait to take a look at that. That's um, if, for those who don't know, October 5th, um, the oral history of Once Upon a Time in Queens is going to be released. Um, you can find that on Amazon. It's going to basically, it's going to cover a lot of things, including some things that didn't, I think, make the, if that's- Well, yeah, there's a lot. And yeah. so, not to cut you off, but I mean, sure. the, 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 um, the first rough cuts mm -hmm. uh, that we delivered to the network to all totaled, uh, all four of them were six hours and 25 minutes. And we had to get it down to three hours and 21 minutes. And, you know, there are rough cuts that are, that feel like rough cuts where you're like, okay, there's no real music here. And it's just talking heads. They haven't put the coverage in, whatever. These were done. These were, I'm not, they're not totally polished, but they, they looked like a movie. And, and, you know, <laughs> in our, well, my, uh, you know, overconfidence and arrogance, I was like, all right, well, so they're going to see this and see like, hey, we got to give these guys more time. Yeah. You know, this is, they, they can polish this, but this is it. And, you know, to their credit, I, I think ESPN said, no, 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 this is terrific. There's great stuff here. Get it down to the proper length. Um, there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it in. And I think that most the thing that bothers me most as a Mets fan, not as a filmmaker, is that right. I just didn't do the ownership story. Um, mm -hmm. This six hour and 25 minutes uh, cut did the, did the ownership story. And it, it did it pretty well, but it took, a, it, it took a lot of screen time to kind of tell 1980, Double A buys the team under the you know, rubric of Double A publishing. And in 1986, Bertelsmann, the German company, buys Doubleday Publishing, and Nelson Doubleday decides, I don't want the Mets to be owned by Bertelsmann, so I have to sell the team from Doubleday Publishing back to myself. 
but in doing that, he either didn't know or wasn't fully aware of or whatever that Fred Wilpon had a right of first refusal. So in the summer of 86, while the Mets are storming off to this, you know, 21 and a half game yeah. division championship, Wilpon and Doubleday are negotiating and Doubleday is getting increasingly upset because they don't actually like each other. Mm -hmm. Fred Wilpon had come in with what one of our interviewees had described as cookie money in in 1980 he had like one maybe five percent of the team double day owned the rest of the team yeah and he didn't think double day but wilpon would have the money but because of the real estate boom in new york city in the 80s wilpon now had the money to come in and buy half the team and so he buys half the team that sale goes through in november of 1986 nelson Doubleday is so upset by the sale he does not go to the parade we all know Dwight Gooden didn't go to the parade, but Nelson Doubleday, the owner, doesn't go to the parade. And I asked Joe McElvain, so in November 86, Fred Wilpon becomes co-owner. Is it a coincidence that they haven't won the World Series again? And, you know, McElvain laughed and said, you know, no comment. Right. And it, like that to me, that Met fan wanted that in. The storyteller had to say, man, that that takes an awfully long time and to tell it over four you know episodes uh you don't have time for that so right. so we lost that and and as the met fan that's the thing that bothers me as a storyteller there are other things just the fact that you know ron darling i think that's the met fan too that ron darling pitched nine shutout innings against the cardinals in game one of that series in 85 i wish i'd put that in yeah. Ray Knight told a fantastic story uh, in 86 of stopping Gary Carter and Daryl Strawberry from having a fight on the team bus. Mm -hmm. I wish I'd had time, figured out a way to put that story in. Yeah. Uh, so, so the storyteller had other sort of, you know, concerns, but the, the storyteller ultimately won out. Mm -hmm. and, and I do feel like we told the single story um, as best we could, given the yeah. three hours and 21 minutes of screen time that we had. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, that's a really interesting story. I actually didn't know very much about the the ownership side there in the 80s, but I don't think a lot of people do uh, the, those details. No, no, I, I, it's in the book. I, I'm I'm happy it is in the book, uh, you know, the, the oral history that's coming. Uh, and it is almost a shame that that didn't make it in because you kind of touched on this angle towards the end of the fourth episode, especially when, especially post once they've won the world series and you kind of this, the last 10 or so minutes of the documentary is about how the team was dismantled uh, over the next few years. And there's this really kind of melancholic clip, uh, like a montage of the players in the Mets uniforms. And then their other teams uniforms, Mookie and the blue Jays, Ronnie and the A's and so on and so forth. And there was like this angle that you kind of hit. I can't remember if you really said it so much, but it was definitely there for me that, it was this 86 team was almost as if they made a deal with the devil. Mm. Um, and, you know, they had their success in 86 and then everything kind of has crumbled in the 30, 35 years since then. And th that, that, ang that ownership angle, I think is really fascinating because that would have put kind of a face to it. Mm. Yes. Yes, it, it would have. We just didn't have time for it. It's there. If you look, sure. it's, it, there's a tiny thing about it, but you, yeah, you Jeff's really in the background, Jeff, Jeff's, yeah fingers are kind of there in the background right and and there's a shot of Doubleday and Will Pond at opening day in 87 and you see they're not dealing with each other and someone is saying and you see the headline that says you know that they've become co-owners and mm -hmm. it says Del Nelson wasn't involved after that and right. you see you know Fred making these gestures it's somebody happy
happily and, and Nelson just looks miserable. No, um, I, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it's one of those, whatever you got to kill your darlings as Faulkner said. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was just such a gut wrenching ending, but also I think like as a fan, uh, I've been able to trace who was to blame. I mean, you do a little basic sweep of Jeff Wilpon's Wikipedia and you get the quote from Doubleday about run, you know, run to the Hills. Um, run for the Hills boys. Right. Yeah. I remember, I, well, I don't remember <laughs> that, but I just, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Like every Met yeah. fan, I think, really has a pulse for that that it wasn't it was to an extent like a deal with the devil and from a narrative angle there's never been a Mets team uh like 86 there have been some that have been that have been close to them but none that have sure I think brought it home is there any team well, none that, you, that brought it home yeah yeah, I, to me, the 2015 team was the one where I just was so upset at Terry Collins mm. um, for being happy to be there. And I feel like when you have a manager who has not won at the major league level, it, the stage gets too big for them. And and he was just you could tell he was just happy to be in the World Series. And and and, you know, you, you can't just be happy to be there. You've got to have that, you know, pedal to the metal. We're going to win no matter what. And that is what the 86 Mets had that that I, you know, I was surprised, actually, in talking to the team and talking to the guys. I was like, but aren't all teams like don't they all want to win? And it's like, yeah, they do. But but not like that team. Like, you know, if you're three for four and you lose and you're on the 85 Red Sox, it's okay to be happy in the, in the clubhouse. But if you're three for four on the 86 Mets and you're happy in the clubhouse, Ray Knight is going to get in your face. Yeah. Like it's all about winning. And, and it just, it hasn't been that way for this franchise, certainly ever, ever since. I mean, it was in, throughout the rest of the Davy Johnson years, I think, except not in management. I mean, they did not like management did not like and I don't blame them you look at the way these guys were living their lives it's like this cannot last um and even those two moves that that you know we point to you know letting Knight go and and trading Mitchell for McReynolds like those are good baseball moves those are sound moves but you know it just mis misread the chemistry of of the team and I think how important chemistry is and the desire to win McReynolds, he didn't, he didn't have the desire to win. He didn't like baseball. Yeah, Lenny um, says that. Yeah, there's a great story that Lenny tells in the, we didn't have time for it, but it's in the book about being invited down to hunt uh, with McReynolds uh, um, in Arkansas. And it's, it's pretty profane and hilarious. Yeah, that's- Lenny Dykstra in this documentary, profane? Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah, I, you kind of touched on it earlier. I was gonna ask, I mean, you cut nearly half of this documentary from that rough cut just purely as a fan. Is there like one story you kind of touched on a few, is there one story that you want everyone to know about? Well, uh, those two, I really did like the, the, the Ray Knight stopping the fight, uh, Carter and, and, uh, and Daryl on the bus. That was the one where I was, and he says, and first of all, he, he told the story really well. He sticks his arms out and he says, you know, you get back there, Daryl, you get up front, Gary. And then he says, we're not going to fight each other. And yeah. like, we're going to fight the rest of baseball, but we're not going to fight each other. And it was just terrific the way he delivered it. And we just, whatever, we just didn't find the right spot for it. And frankly, we were, you know, scrambling to get to time. Yeah. Um, 
note to anybody who ever makes a documentary film about anything, put in more editing weeks, just always put in more editing weeks. If we'd had another three weeks to edit this, we probably would have brought that story back. There was a story that we had cut that we brought back late in the, in the process. And I, it was always out there. I was like, we've got to find a way to get this story in. And I'm glad we did. It was a Dykstra story about Carter and, you know, the thing in the hallway at uh, in a hotel in Atlanta where he's mule kicking the door. Yeah. And yeah. Trying to get Gary to come out and party. And it just shows, you know, it's something that speaks to the toughness of Gary Carter um, mm-hmm. and just the fun of the thing. And um, yeah. anyway, so yeah. there, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of other stories that will occur to me, but um, those, those are the two. Right. We well, we wouldn't game. want you to, to spill the uh, the contents of the oral history uh, before it's before it's been published. And that's I mean, yeah, that's so those are a lot of questions about what did it make it and what wasn't done, so to speak. And I, I would be remiss to have have you on our podcast and, you know, grill you about what wasn't in this great docuseries. I would like to know with everything that was produced and put out there, what was your favorite moment in the production process? What was just the most fun thing to uncover, tell the story of, uh, edit? So my favorite moment, and I, I, I honestly, it is like trying to choose between your children uh, because it's, it, there were so many moments, like the day of, when the pandemic st- struck, we started going remotely entirely. So. I'm zooming in and conducting the interviews over Zoom, but I did not come this far to uh, not meet Daryl Strawberry and conduct his interview in person. So I flew to St. Louis with my cameraman during the height of the pandemic or like wearing hazmat suits and stuff. So that as a moment was maybe my favorite moment. But I think my favorite moment in the sort of creation and in the edit was um, when uh, the editor, Josh Freed, showed me the rough cut the first cut of of game seven uh, and the sequence where uh, Hernandez uh, is describing his at bat and he says, oh, that two one, you know, the first pitch buckled me and I had to choke up on the bat. And, you know, for four hours, I've seen this guy with his cat and he never addresses the cat until he says, but then I choked up on the bat because all that was needed was a base hit. And he turns to the cat and he says, right, Hodge? Yeah. And the music kicks in and he gets the base hit and I just was like, oh God, Josh Freed, thank you. Keith Hernandez, thank you. You know, Haji, thank you. And I, I remember in the, you know, I, I sort of forget, like you'd conduct these interviews and obviously it was a big deal that Keith had the cat there and it was a decision, um, you know, to, to permit the cat to be there. But I'd forgotten just how exciting it was when he said that in the interview, because I was like, oh my God, that's gonna be great. And then, you know, you get into the edit and you forget all about it. And, and then there it was. And Josh had, had put the music in uh, in a way that just thrilled me. Um, so I think that was maybe my highlight in some ways of the creative process. Yeah, Haji was almost a character in and of, it, of, in and of totally. himself. Totally, yeah. Haji's great. Um, I'm curious, I want to kind of pivot from this kind of uh, angle of the conversation to some of my questions we talked last week and I was maybe slightly more critical. I think you, you listened to what our thoughts on a, on our, on the, on the review. Last yeah, let's week. go. I mean, I'm in the hot seat now, the lion's yeah. den. <laughs> I was just curious because uh, having a, obviously during the height of the pandemic, the last dance came out, which is probably already among, if not the most famous sports documentary to ever air. 
uh, it was that was a cultural event because everyone was stuck in their house and everyone tuned into that to watch the story of Michael Jordan and the, the 90s Bulls. And I, I'm curious because for me, at least, there is clearly some influence, uh, perhaps in the way that you tell the story of the characters, you go kind of back in time. And uh, that's not just the last dance thing, but they really did that kind of highlighting different characters uh, in individual episodes. Uh, I, I want to know how much of an influence The Last Dance had, how much do you think that The Last Dance has on sports documentaries uh, in general now and how important that was? And if, cause you said you were already in production when uh, the pandemic hit. So I want to know if that kind of threw you for a loop when that came out. Oh, I was just thrilled and excited. I felt like, wow, here is ESPN's big production of this year. Obviously, I knew, you know, the pandemic, I hoped, would not still be around. But I, I thought that it was fantastic. And the way they ran with it uh, was, was great. Um, uh, it, it had no effect on us at all, really, because we had, as you said, like we'd started. Like my original pitch, that pitch document I referred to, talked about OJ made in America, you know, to me it was, and I think in the room, I was pitching it as OJ made in America meets Goodfellas. Like that was what I was attempting to do. Um, and so that, and you know, Ezra Edelman was, was sort of foremost in my mind as I was conceiving of the thing. And then, you know, you get into it and you just stop thinking about all those things. Um, but, you know, I, the same as everybody else, I watched OJ made in America I mean, uh, uh, well, I watched OJ Made in America and I marveled at it and I thought, wow, yes, it can be done. Um, and we don't have nearly the importance, really, of, of you know, a, a murder and race. And, uh, you know, the, those were, were grappling with, with sort of in some ways weightier issues. But in other respects, I did feel like, yeah, I want to tell the story of New York City in the 80s as seen through the lens of the 1986 Mets. And when I, for the last two years, people ask me what I'm working on, if they didn't seem to be sports fans, that would be how I would describe it. Um, and and so, but but like everyone else, I watched and inhaled the last dance and thought it was totally entertaining. And, and as you say, it is something of a game changer. I do think that the, the uh, critique that has been offered of it, not as filmmaking, but just in, in sort of how it came to be that, you know, Michael Jordan was paid uh, a considerable amount of money for his participation, you know, I think Ken Burns said, ah, you know, I'm not going to watch this. It's not a documentary. I, that's, I don't make that kind of distinction, but I do think that that, that is a distinction uh, between, between The Last Dance and many other films. Um, you know, we didn't, and a great Jimmy Kimmel story, we, <laughs> we were pitching a network uh, and this was pre-pandemic, but he was in LA and we were in New York and he was on the phone on the speakerphone and it came up like, uh, and this was before the last dance, but you know, somebody at the network said, well, what are you going to do if these guys want money? And I sort of, I was like, Ooh, it's a good question. We never really considered it. We certainly are not budgeted for that. It's a documentary mm -hmm. film. You don't pay people. Um, you know, you might give somebody, you know, car fare to get them to the interview location. And I sort of, I don't know, I looked at the Major League Baseball guy and he looked at me and we didn't know what to say. And then from the, uh, from the speakerphone, Jimmy Kimmel said, we'll pay them in cocaine. <laughs> so, you know, uh, 
so it was like, and at that moment, I was like, yes, that's why we have Jimmy Kimmel. Like, this is this is going to be great. Um, but anyway, but I do think that there's that 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 difference, and I think that that's the case with a lot of quote unquote celebrity documentaries that the celebrity decides they want to do this and then you get to go do it and that's great but we were lucky enough that that they didn't have any creative or editorial control uh and there hadn't been a financial arrangement and so it's not like it's not a loving good portrait but i mean i, I like to make things where you fall in love with the characters whether they're mm -hmm. you know whoever they are um but but we do also obviously reveal all kinds of things that that you know they were willing to share with us but um that maybe wouldn't have been in a documentary that was you know quote unquote authorized by um these guys sure and you know you, you just kind of alluded to it was there a concern um with possibly romanticizing this group of guys who have been involved in so many kind of um morally Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, no, that was very much a concern. And, and I've been surprised that, you know, there have been a fair amount of, of you know, criticisms leveled at the <laughs> this show. But uh, nobody has, has said, and they're glamorizing these guys, um, which I feel good about because I, I didn't want to glamorize it. On the other hand, it was a totally different time. Attitudes were totally different. And the, but I think the reason people aren't saying that we're glamorizing it is because they aren't glamorizing it you know daryl and and doc and and uh ohita who says like you know you look back and it's that's not good you know yeah. and they all know that their behavior was was not good um and and they have distance and perspective on it that that, that i think is is helpful getting back to your last dance thing i, I was also very concerned that on a in a four hour film about the 1986 Mets, we don't get to 1986 until episode two. Mm -hmm. And I was really worried that people were going to tune in and be like, what's going on? I don't want to see the 70s. I, you know, let's let's get to it. Um, other than after the cold open, which is just a minute or so at the at the at the opening. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I don't know what this has to do with the last dance other than it's true. They went back and forth and back and forth. And and I did think as we were editing, it had always been my structure. No, we're starting episode one is getting there. It's bringing that team together. It's the heist movie. It's you need a cat burglar. You need a, you know, it's bringing all these characters yeah. on stage. Um, but when I saw Last Dance, I did think, oh, God, yes. Another way to do this is just structure it all as the 86th season and you're flashing back and telling the stories. Um, and I just felt like I don't want to do that. You know, and and so as late as when we delivered that first cut to ESPN, I was worried someone was going to say, you know, fun's fun, but you got to do it this other way. But nobody ever said that. Yeah. Well, I think to your, uh, you know, to your credit, there are moments in that uh, in that third and in those third and fourth episodes, especially with Mike Scott and also with Calvin Chiraldi, there are um, sufficient flashbacks. And those yeah. are things that. I think in the Tom Seaver flashback is probably important too, because the whole rise is foregrounded in the demolition that begins it, that, that you know, none of this is possible if they don't burn it all down in 1977. Um, I think you did a, yeah. a, a very sound job with the contextualizing and I'm sure it's, you know, as a fan, especially like that's so hard to do. I mean, we can do this with David, Wright, Right. Like 
fantastic career with the Mets, um, you know, storied all the records. We also don't get him if Mike Hampton doesn't leave the Mets for the Colorado Rockies, you know, but like it's, we right. could do this. We could do this for all, like all the generations back, like with butterfly effects and whatnot. It's, I mean, I mean, I totally understand like how challenging that becomes, especially when you're trying to focus on like the best team in Mets history, easily the best team in Mets history. So um, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that uh, I think you did justice to that aspect of it. I mean, it's, it's also tricky for me just cause I'm like, I'm much more of a baseball fan than a basketball fan. So I'm much more easily amused by these stories about baseball than, you know, and I'm less easily perturbed by nuances that may not be included. But I'm wondering if, as you've sort of moved from the production directorial phase to now this writing of the oral history, how that like move over has um, challenged you, if, if that's been... Uh, a, a welcome well, it was really yeah I mean what was fun was I got to include you know I mean basically we had to hand in the 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 I had to hand in the manuscript in something like February or something so we'd already delivered the first two hours to, of that six and a half hour rough cut we hadn't completed we'd completed three we hadn't completed four and so it helped me enormously on the film to have to do the book section of the fourth hour first. So that when we got to the edit room of that like last, you know, the Ode to the Met section where we used the Stroke song, right? It, like I, I was able to hand the editor like, here's how this transcript should should go. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it, he's even so he had to loop the song twice because there was so much material uh, in the in the aftermath before we were able to corral it down into just one song um but i think it it was more it's funny because it ended up really helping me on the film to to have to do the book kind of when we did it Mm -hmm. um and it was just it was just such a privilege not to have to be so rigorous about the cutting (laughs) Mm -hmm. definitely i mean you mentioned the music that's just like i didn't realize i never picked up that the that ode to the mets is like extended in that scene and now i'm like well, no, it's one. You know, we play it once. I mean, oh. in the rough cut, we we looped it. Oh, no, it okay. plays once and and once only. And we yeah. were rigorous about. And I think we would have had to pay more money, even if you yeah. just loop it a little bit. Um, playing it know, twice it like would have been game. too uh, too brutal. I yeah. think it's just. Yeah. I mean, that's no. I mean, Jimmy was thing. very the, the first rough cut when we played it twice. Jimmy was like, "How long is this fucking song?" Yeah, uh, what's well, like, sad? Yeah. That's really yeah. what it is. It's yeah. yeah. I mean, music it is it's very very sad. Yeah. I think that the way you layer music, especially, and you've talked about this on the uh, on other podcasts a little, so I don't want to belabor the point, but that's something that is obviously very important to you in the in the process of editing um, this this long. It wasn't this. I really wanted to take people back to that time and place, yeah, and give the feeling that that we all had, um, and that I had, and you know, I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts where I remember being at a game in August of '85 and just thinking like it's happening. It's happening. I've been waiting my whole life for it. And, and it's here and remember this feeling, remember this feeling. And, um, it was a good game. And, and, you know, the place was going crazy and I hadn't experienced anything like it. And I feel like that, that feeling 
uh, is what I wanted the film to capture. And so the music and the, you know, the archival footage and the stills and everything, I just wanted to bring people back to that time and place. And not every film does that, you know, historical films can not have that as their aim. But this one, that was what I wanted to do. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that you definitely captured that, especially for us. I was born in 2000. I wasn't around to experience 1986. I've really only been around as a baseball, as a conscious baseball fan to experience one actual contender in my lifetime in 2015. I don't really count 2016 too, too much, but uh, I think you did an excellent job because now I have this kind of piece of media that makes me feel like I was there. That makes me feel like I experienced the city in, in the eighties and made me feel like I experienced uh, this team despite not having a, uh, been actually there i was curious before we kind of wrap up uh one other question i had was um some people made a note that there were certain players who weren't interviewed in the in the in the film there was no howard johnson there was no jesse roscoe i was wondering if there was a reason for that narratively i was wondering if there were any voices that you felt uh were missing so jesse roscoe said no uh, early on in the process. Um, uh, he didn't say no to me. He said no to Jay Horowitz. Um, and I had so many other fish to fry at that point um, that I just thought, all right, I will either come back to Jesse Roscoe or not. And then because of the pandemic, it really altered our production schedule and it made it harder to do more than, it made it impossible to do more than one in a day if you're doing it remotely. Um, so I never circled back with Jesse. I think that his concern was, oh, no, not this again. It's going to be so negative. It's all Daryl and Doc. I don't want to do it. Um, and I felt sort of bad about it, but I just had too many other things going on. Lee Mazzilli also said no early on. Um, and I think that was because he was affiliated with the Yankees and just didn't want to gunk that up. Um, although I later heard after this started to you know get some attention that he called Jay and said, why aren't I in this? <laughs> and Jay was like, because you said no. Uh, Howard Johnson, late in the process, I, I had to get Ray Knight first. Right. Uh, I did not want to film with Howard Johnson and not Ray Knight. And Ray Knight was very hard to schedule. We finally got Ray Knight. Then I reached out to Howard Johnson and he actually never got back to me. Um, I feel from a storytelling point of view, it's fine not to include Howard Johnson. Uh, he was a member of the 86 Mets, but he wasn't an important member. He had some big regular season hits did not do much in the postseason. And in fact, his at bat in game six in the ninth inning was, you know, terrible at bat, uh, worthy of the 2021 Mets. Um, but um, all the same, I would love to have had him. Um, yeah. So those were the, those were the guys. And then, and, uh, and George Foster and George Foster, as we say in the film, like he declined, although there too, he said no. And then I got on the phone with him because I really wanted him. And, and after a terrific, very funny phone call, he said, okay, and he would do it. And then the pandemic struck. And when I circled back with him to try and arrange logistics, he, he decided he had enough time to think about it and he decided to pass. Um, but no, I didn't feel like we're missing any, anything. I mean, you know, the, the semi-platoon third baseman, Orozco, you know, would have been good, but um, it was all a part of sort of how the process played out. I mean, but frankly, we got McDowell very late because of the pandemic mm -hmm. and he was staying with his in-laws and there was a whole thing there. And by the time we had McDowell, we were in that six and a half hour yeah. version. So we didn't need great stories from Roger McDowell and we got what we got and it was great. And he, you know, probably could have used a little more of him. But we were at that point, like trying to cut, 
So it didn't feel like at that point, God, you know what we really need is, is a great story from Roger McDowell. And, and the best thing he said actually was, there are things that happen in that locker room that you're never going to know about. And that to me was just like, that's what we need is like, we're not going to know what happened. Um, we can suggest, but you know, it's a team. They're not going to tell us. That's fun for us. No, no fun stories from uh, Raphael Santana. <laughs> yeah, him, I, you know, I, I, I've seen, yeah, he would have been great, but you know, you gotta, we didn't have unlimited funds, you know. No, I'm, um, I'm Nick, I'm pulling No, I know, I, I, it's funny because in the, in the interview, Jeff Perlman said, you know, they were the perfect team. They had this and it was perfect. That was perfect. And, and then he said, had the perfect 218 hitting shortstop, you know, yeah, like, yeah. He, he, yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure that Rafael Santana was mentioned by name in the entire four-part series. He wasn't. No, that no, wouldn't be uh, the well, uh, Scully, Scully, Scully says right where right where Santana is playing him on sure. a ground ball. But yeah, you know, it's yeah. Also, there's one ground ball in the game six of the playoffs where it's like reach. Like he, he didn't have much range. He was so smooth, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but he didn't really have a lot of range. For sure. Yeah. And then the the last thing that i think we need to talk about and address yeah is lenny Dykstra. Off, baby oh lenny Dykstra. Uh, I, yeah unless there was something that you thought i was no no no. Say. i thought you had some other criticism that i was gonna have to, to uh swat away um <laughs> i i uh yeah i don't know what to say about lenny dykstra he was great i thought it was fantastic it was one of the more exhilarating interviews i've ever conducted um i found him to be like four hours i found him to be remarkably lucid in like an odd sense like yeah. he was obviously slurring his words and there were at points where he kind of needed subtitles to understand what he was saying and every third word was the f word but uh i mean he said some things that really kind of turned my head i mean he had the one point when you were kind of eulogizing gary carter that has really yeah. struck with me where he said all of us were doing all these drugs and these terrible things and he's the first to go like how fucked up is that yeah yeah and this that god dude he says this god yeah. dude you know it's it's i i think uh lenny is crazy like a fox i i have yeah. to say i know people think he's just off his rocker but he 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 delivered you know the, the four-hour interview i was like this guy it was crazy and he began with this profane rant about body parts that you could never use any of but it was hilarious and then by the end where he's talking about gary carter and talking about his life and how days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months months turn into years but it's okay it's okay because i right. want a world series in new york and it was like i got chills in the interview you know three thousand miles away over the zoom and i felt like this guy is is a real guy it was yeah. intense yeah definitely I mean, he was like the sound and the fury of that, uh, of that, that documentary, I think, because even when you didn't necessarily understand, like when he's like trying to spell out the word surreal party was just like, yes, I, I know how it's spelled, but also like, he's trying to say something like, you know, like yeah. there's a constant thread in what, in what he offers and that you can pick up like the emotionality of it. And I think that that's something that's also really special. And I think you captured really well, because Lenny, especially like just the whole personality was, you know, from the, you know, the scrappiness to obviously the controversies, like he's just, he really is like the emblem of that team. And when they got rid of him, that was just sort of, and I, you know, ironically, that was like 
the baseball move that was the worst that they made. Yeah. You know, that was like that his- one. That one made no sense at the time. I mean, the others you could argue, but that one was like, what are you doing? And you're giving them McDowell for this yeah. guy who's never played center field. It made no sense. To the Phillies, no less. A rival. Yeah. In division. Yeah. Awful. Awful. Yeah. Awful. All right, Nick. So before we let you go, and this has been fantastic, really, really great. Uh, one thing we do with all our guests at the end of every episode, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you're, you're smiling, you're laughing. I think you know what I'm going to say. We like to remember guys here on the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. So it doesn't have to be an 86 Met. can be literally any Met ever. Uh, who are we remembering today? We are remembering Bruce Beauclair is who yes. we're remembering. Uh, the left-handed hitting, uh, sometimes platoon starting right fielder for the 77, 78 Mets. Also had some playing time in 76 and 79. He was, uh, after the Seaver trade and before Daryl, he was my favorite player. And he was unbelievably gawky and awkward and had this weird French name and a a long, (laughs) bizarrely long chin and was, you know, 6'4", 210, and would hit two home runs a year. I mean, he had no power. And um, his specialty was the drag bunt. And every year he would like lead the league in drag bunts for base hits. Um, And finally, I was at a game in 79 where he, I think we were losing 13 to two or something. And he dragged a bunt and it was, you know, one of his specialties. And in leaping for first base, he twisted his ankle on the base and it basically ended his career. Um, And he was so just gangly and goofy and, um, and then I got to meet him. Uh, I got to meet him for my 13th birthday. Uh, and he was every bit as, as goofy and gangly and incorrect in person as he had been, uh, uh, you know, just as, as a favorite player. And he, he, he ate my French fries. That was what I remember. He, we went to like a place in Great Neck. He ate my French fries and he called me Mickey the whole night. He called me Mickey. And my cousin was there and she was like, Nikki, you idiot. Nikki. <laughs> so God. that's my Bruce Beauclair story. Lifetime 684 OPS across five seasons with 10 What's home that? Runs. What was his OPS? 684, sub 700. Yeah, but a pretty, with, guy, he's a pretty good. Um, he had, I'm looking at his stat lines. He had, two, he had two good years. He had 287. 287, 293? Yeah. Yep. Yep. In back-to-back years in 76 yeah. and 77. <laughs> Uh, got on base above. Yeah, and he drew walks. Those years. Yeah, yeah, he got on base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he did get but, on base. He had no power. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it, absolutely no power. Uh, Sixty-three extra base hits across uh, one thousand at bats, roughly over five years. <laughs> uh, fairly decent stolen bases, right? There should be some stolen bases up there, I think. Uh, only eighteen in his career. Well, that was a lot. I mean, I thought that was a lot. Or maybe like he never got caught st- stealing or something? Or maybe I'm... No, he nah, was... He, no, no. he had 14 caught stealings. <laughs> okay. 18 to 14 ratio. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, anyway, he was my guy. All right. Oh, and then the other great play he made, there was a man on second mm-hmm. and 10th inning, uh, two outs in a game at Pittsburgh, base Uh-oh. hit to right field. He throws to second base. Either winning run scores is he threw the second base. I'm just like, what, what he like? It's like, what was he thinking? Like, he wasn't thinking. It was just he was just he was, yeah. So I made sure that we name checked him in the in the film, um, and and have a shot of him striking. 
<laughs> because to me, he he was the epitome of those years, uh, which I call the Beauclair years. He was he was not well known; like nobody called them the Beauclair years. But uh, right. to me, he was the symbol of it all. That is great. That's always just so interesting. Like, cause I yeah, I mean, we remember guys all the time, and we associate them with years. You know, cause like. 2010 to like 2014 it's just Ooh. like same four kinds of players that they kept trotting out you know but anyway sam who do you got oh put me on i don't even have a guy today i haven't even thought about one uh i will you want me to go i'll go yeah. i'll defer yeah, to you as i think I just, yeah i'll think that's fine um so i was thinking a little bit about uh like the draft rebuilds that the mets did uh, obviously Daryl Strawberry is the big ticket name and Dwight Gooden coming around was like a gift from God. Um, but they also had a pitcher who they drafted, uh, who was supposed to be really good, who got hurt. Uh, and from time to time, I kind of think about what would have happened if Tim Leary had, had stayed healthy. Cause he was really like at the time, the best like young pitchers that they'd had, this is like we're now getting into, I think the early eighties, um, they had like Craig Swan and they had Pat Zachary. No, Tim Leary came out of, I think USC or UC, was it UC? USC it was one UCLA. of the California schools. Yeah. And he was going to be Seaver. He was going to be Seaver. He was like the next Seaver. And, and his first game was at Wrigley field and it was, it was a rainy sort of drizzly day, pitched two scoreless innings and then had to come out with an arm injury. And that was it. It's just sad. You know, yeah, I mean, and he's not even the uh, the beginning of that in terms of like drafted drafted players. Yeah. I mean, I'm only going to remember one guy, but if he had really held up and, you know, he to his credit, he would go on to have a pretty lengthy career. He was in the league for about 13 seasons. Um, yeah. So it wasn't like he, you know, flamed out and never found a place. He had a year where he made 34 starts with the Dodgers and put up an ERA below three in 88, which is mm -hmm. cruel mm -hmm. to think about. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, Tim Leary was someone that if he'd also been around, you know, that could have been a, that could have also been kind of cool because 108 wins is a lot, but um, yeah, he, he also could have brought something. He was a 12 game winner in Milwaukee in 86. So there's definitely value there. All right, I'll just, I'll, you know, I'll throw out Fernando Martinez today. Why not? He was briefly touted as the next Daryl Strawberry for a hot second there, and then he yeah. never stayed healthy and never hit. So okay. uh, I yeah, apologize guys, you just for not having a better name. No, so that's you, a good name. I feel like, you know, he and Milling, Lasting's Millage. Yeah. Like, they were both so like, you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be the guy. And then they come up, they're not that good, and they get rid of them, like, before you know it. And it's like, yeah. well, you, you told me this guy was going to be the guy. And there was that second baseman who was going to be the guy. And then they Reece traded Havens. him. No, it was, some, was it like the first Louis Castillo or, or there was just somebody. There was a second baseman, and they ended up trading him to Cincinnati. But when he was coming up in the minors, it was like, this guy is going to be amazing. Maybe it wasn't Louis Castillo. Maybe they traded Oh, Dilson Herrera? Ah, yes, it was Herrera. Yes. Yeah. 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 What happened to him? His shoulder got screwed up. And, uh, and you look at these guys like, you know, Brett Batty or, or the guys who are coming up now, and you're like, I think these guys are going to be amazing. But, mm -hmm. you know, you never know until they get here. You never know and with prospects, at, yeah. Look at Kalenic. What's happened to Kalenic? I mean, I, you know, I don't. Well, he's kind of come around. He, he actually, 
the, has the, he come the around? Game logs are good. He's his numbers are getting there. I mean, he just really, I think, okay. experience. But um, man, the Mariners are doing some crazy things. I'm oh, sure that that will be a fun yes. thing to watch. I really, if they can somehow crash the wild card and beat the Yankees, only a half game would, out right now. Only a yeah. half game out. It's possible. I, I got to channel. They got the most Mets, so I have to channel it towards them. Definitely, definitely. Very it's much, hard I'm, to. As much as I'm rooting for the whole five game tie ultra chaotic uh finish uh i think that the, the most fun matchup would be blue jays mariners so that's my rooting interest right now but god it'd be fun for the mariners to break that drought and then like actually make a run with like a negative 50 run differential they have no business winning games like this but they are an 88 win team and they are a half game out of the wild card and i'm, I'm very much here for it yeah all right nick davis uh thank you so much for joining us thank you for taking the time out of uh your i'm sure busy schedule uh before we let you go why don't you uh do a little shameless plug what do you have coming up what do you have coming out and where can people find you oh um well look i mean i try and do the twitter as they say um i i I don't even know what my handle is i think it's nick davis pro or nick davis prods probably yeah prods nick davis prods on twitter uh I have, uh, well, this book is coming out today, Once Upon a Time in Queens, the oral history of the 86 Mets. And I have another book that just came out a couple of weeks ago about my grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote Citizen Kane, and his brother, Joe Mankiewicz, who wrote and directed All About Eve. And that book is called Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait. Um, and, you know, that one, <laughs> that one needs a little more love. Um, so, uh, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a great story. So, um, anyway, um, and that, you know, I've got other things in the works, but it's going to take a long time to finish. So, all right, Nick Davis, thank you so much for joining us here on the pleasant good evening podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. This was easily one of the, I think my favorite interviews that we've ever done here on PGE. So, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And thanks uh, thank- guys. This was great. You yeah. guys were terrific. It was really fun. Sure. Thank you so much. So. Mm-hmm. For Nick Davis and for Jack Hendon, I'm Sam Lovowitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant evening.